The sermon text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Do you understand the incredible power of the words that you use to communicate with one another? Um, most of us know that old nursery rhyme, children's nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It, even those who are young know that's patently false. Words do hurt us. In fact, in Proverbs 18, 21, uh, the preacher says that, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's incredible, something so small and yet so powerful. You know, when you, when you think about the, um, like a bit and a bridle can control a horse that's over 2,000 pounds. A relatively small rudder can control the direction of an ocean liner over 1,000 feet. And here you have the tongue that has such incredible power. We can put a person on the moon, we can drop them to the bottom of the sea, we can tame the wildest and the largest of animals, and yet the tongue seems untrainable, untamable. In fact, in James, he writes, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Do you understand the power of your words? I mean, how many conflicts have you had in your marriage? Uh, because you had to have the last word. Or you had to uh, return a hurt because someone hurt you. Or a sarcastic comment to be funny. Or an, an outburst of anger just to vent. And how many times have you thought, why did I just say that? I should have shut my mouth. Or maybe your spouse was thinking that. And at the same time, think of, how, think of how much help and hope can be given by a word rightly spoken. You know, we're in this series on, on marriage, and today, of course, is on communication in marriage. Um, I, I don't claim to any sort of, uh, Carol and I have this perfect communication. In fact, kind of marriage was, um, as I shared, as we were together during uh, the beginning of the, um, when we had to be out of the office. And uh, I remember getting kind of, I don't know, frustrated. I think I had to do something that I thought she should do. 
And so I, uh, being the good Christian man that I am, I expressed to her that I had to do something that I thought she should do. And um, she had a word for me, and um, I began to kind of sulk a bit, maybe wallow in a bit of self-pity. And I said something like, uh, uh, sorry, I'm not the husband you always wanted. And uh, without hesitation, she said, that's all right, I'll try again when you're dead. And I thought, <laughs> so we're going to grow from this today, too. Actually, it was so funny. I wrote it down after she said it, and uh, I said, that was incredibly good. Um, but so we're going to talk about communication and marriage right now. You know, the, the idea, we're in Ephesians. So Ephesians begins on this high note of blessing, right? Paul says you've been blessed in the spiritual places, and in, in, you've been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And these blessings have come to you through the redemption that's in Christ, and it comes, you're sealed by the Spirit, and it's through faith in the gospel. So the, the um, opening chapter of Ephesians says that you've been adopted into God's family through faith. Now the way Paul describes this is in chapter 2 is it's like a new creation. You're part of a new creation. You've been born again. Things are now new for you. And then he begins to talk to us about the new way that we are to live. Now, right prior to our passage, uh, we have this encouragement to put off the old man, to put on the new man. So what Paul's saying is that if you've been born again, if you're part of a new creation, then you're going to begin to live differently. Not perfectly, we're still going to sin, but now with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we're going to live in a new way of life. And that's what our passage is about these different ways that we now live because we have been filled with God's Spirit. So, for example, he says, if you're made new, then you're not going to keep lying. You're going to speak the truth. That was in 25. You won't keep defending and obfuscating and lying and twisting things around. You're going to speak the truth because you're now new. You're not going to speak the way you used to. Or those who let anger simmer and burn. That's not for the new person. The new person reconciles conflict. He doesn't let the sun go down on his anger. Or, or, or three, uh, the thief will no longer steal, he says. So if you're born again, if you have a new way of life, you don't, you don't waste time at the office. You don't get paid for doing nothing. You don't steal. But you work diligently. And then it leads us up to our passage. If you've been made new, then there is nothing corrupt that is to come out of your mouth, but that which is for the building up of the body. So Paul's saying that the newness, this new creational life that we've been invited, is to be evidenced in our speech. Basically, we're to speak redemptively. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean we speak in a way that doesn't seek to destroy and divide, but rather restore and redeem. We're to speak in a way that advances God's purposes in one of those lives. There's four things that I want to talk to you about this redemptive speech, and then I want to give you some takeaways at the end, because I think you'll find yourself um, hopefully feeling rightly convicted over the way that you use your mouth. You've been made new, our speech is to be new. It's like a new language that we're learning. Uh, so, so first, redemptive speech will be building others up. Look with me just at the beginning of 29. We're going to focus on 29 and 30. That's all we're looking at. 
In 29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up. So you kind of see a negative and a positive there, right? You see a negative, don't let corrupt speech come out of your mouth, but let that speech come out of your mouth that builds up. So the negative is don't let corrupt speech come out. What is corrupt speech? Well, the word corrupt just means kind of putrid, smelly, rotten. It's used of rotten fruit in Matthew 7. It's used of, of rotting fish in Matthew 13. In other words, don't let the kind of speech out of your mouth that is somewhat equivalent to these things that rot. You've bitten into an apple, and it's been absolutely rotten, and just the, just the texture on your teeth makes you squirm. Or you've been around fish that are way past their eat date, and they just stink. So he's saying that corrupt speech is like that. It's rotten. It doesn't nourish. What do I mean? What does he mean? Well, speaking more broadly, he's not speaking simply about avoiding obscene or vulgar language. I, I, I think he's speaking much more than the garden variety four-letter word that you're to avoid. I think he's talking about lying. I think he's talking about gossip. I think he's talking about slander, sarcasm that hurts. I think he's talking about, about kind of blame-shifting. I think he's speaking about those critical comments when we can seem to find the dent in every other person beside us, whether it's in their personality or in what they say. It, it's, that, it's that kind of bitterness of speech that he's saying avoid. And why does he say it? Well, because it destroys, it divides, it creates distrust. You know, when you're with a person that may assail you with their words, you're in fear. It doesn't create unity, particularly in marriage. It may create silence, but it creates a lot of fear. It doesn't nourish. It doesn't help. You know, we can verbally tear things down. I mean, like a sledgehammer to a wall. You know, James warns us in chapter 3 that, that the tongue can ignite a fire, a forest fire. You know, some of these, I'd ask Lauren to do some research on the speed of these, these fires that can consume. You know, you think about like in the grasslands when a fire just takes off, they can travel at 14 miles an hour. You can't outrun one of those. When, when we say certain things that are destructive or dividing or hurtful or critical, I mean, it can burn a lot of ground before it runs out of fuel. You know, I was watching, um, or I was at church, I think it was in Michigan, uh, but it was a children's sermon, and someone had a great little analogy. Uh, in teaching the children about how to use their mouths well, she squirted out some toothpaste onto a plate, and she asked the children to put it back into the toothpaste. And, uh, of course, they couldn't do it. And... Uh, we used to do children's sermon here just as a corollary until somebody got up and said, Jesus is like a potato chip. And that's when I thought, boom, they got to go. Uh, but, but the point of it is that, that the toothpaste, you can't get it back in. When you say something that's harmful or hurtful, there's no way of getting it back. It does its damage. And that damage can last a long time. So he says, avoid the corrupt speech. But it's not simply you biting your tongue or you whispering under your breath or you talking more civilly to one another. He's saying, build one another up. Now that word to build up, it means to construct a home. You, you take a home and you make, it, you make it habitable. You make it livable. So your words are to be like that. They're to be words of hope and healing where you're building people up. You may be encouraging them to faith in times of struggle. You may be admonishing them from things that are destructive. 
You may be calling to faith for those who are facing grave illness. But you're using your words to help build them up and advance them in the purposes of God. So what would God call us to be doing? Let your words be advancing that. You know, Paul says it this way. He says, let your words always be seasoned with salt. And what does salt do? It stops decay. It stops corruption. It stops things from rotting. So your words are to be helping one another fight sin, walk in godliness, and kind of behave in a manner in accordance with the newness of your life. Words of healing give life. You know, the writer of Proverbs, he says that the words of the wise are healing. The mouth of the righteous is like a fountain of life. Is that what your words do? Do they give life? Do they produce hope in people? So take your marriages, for example. You know, marriages are probably the single most place where we can wound each other the deepest because we know each other the best. Do your words, are your words given in a way of building up? Or are they given in a way of tearing down? To what degree have you brought hope to your marriage? Calling your spouse to faith, to joy, repenting quickly. Or to what degree have your words brought harm in wanting to win an argument or wanting to make your point or exploiting a weakness of the other so as to get your lick in? I mean, to what degree do you do this? And, and, and to what degree do you speak in tender-hearted ways, even expressing gratitude and love? You know, sometimes you say, people say, well, I, I have to be honest with myself and I can't say something I don't feel. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I, I mean, love is a choice we're making. Carol and I try to intentionally say we love each other in the midst of conflict because we don't feel it toward each other at the time. Expressing love is a commitment to future, to future love. It, it, it's saying, I will love you. Even though right now we are not getting along super well, we will stay together and we'll work this thing out. Uh, so that's what that tender-hearted expression of love I would ask you, if you're, if you're married, uh, to ask your spouse, to what degree do you think my words are building or tearing? And give examples of each. Help them understand it. But it's not just in marriage that we do this. It's in all of our relationships, right? I mean, you don't have to be married to understand the harmful words that can be given, the slights, the sarcasm, the humor at your expense. I mean, that's why we come to church, really. The, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling together, you know, but come together and, and encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you realize that the relationships you have here, they are to be relationships that further the work of God in your life. So we are pilgrims. We're each day, we're moving to that day that we're going to see them. And we're to be encouraging one another. And, and, and part of our words is to build one another up. So it was written of Job in chapter 4. He says, Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made him firm, or you have made firm the feeble knees. Do you do that? Are you looking for opportunities? Are you this kind of friend? I mean, I think we'd all admit we need these kinds of friends, but are you this kind of friend that you want to firm up those with feeble knees? Again, it may not just be kind of an encouragement. It may be a godly admonition. But what we're trying to do is we're all trying to finish this race being made new. 
Uh, so that's the first thing. Redemptive speech will be building others up. Secondly, redemptive speech is fit for the occasion. Just look down in 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for building up, as it fits the occasion. This is really a nuance to how we speak. You know, think about it, as fits the occasion. So what he's saying here is, when you go to speak to a person, you want to make sure that it fits the occasion. You want to be aware of the timing of your words and the temperament, the tone of your words. So we know how inappropriate it would be for you to go in and be a jokester at the bedside of someone who's dying. You know that's not appropriate. Or to express how what good fortune you've experienced in life when you're with a group of people who are in the midst of misfortune. I mean, that, that's just not appropriate. It doesn't fit the occasion. And so what, what Paul's saying here is that, is that words that redeem are words that are fit to the occasion, that, that you're asking questions of the one that you're speaking to, that you're listening to where they are in life. You know, it, it's, it's bad it's unhelpful to give advice to a person about what to do before you know what they're experiencing. The proverb says it's folly to give an answer before the question comes. That's what we do. We tend to speak first. Hey, we've got to just set the, we gotta set the story straight. I've got to tell you what I'm thinking. No, you don't. You really don't need to. You can first ask, is this well-timed? Is this what the person needs? And is this the timing for it? It really, it really calls for us to exercise self-control. That is a fruit of the Spirit. That we actually regulate ourselves. Something may need to be said. I grant you that. It just may not be said right now. It may need to wait. You know, so we talk about freedom of speech. You know, in some ways, the Christian doesn't have freedom of speech. We are not just free to say whatever we want to whomever we want, whenever we want. He's saying as it fits the occasion. So when you look at your marriages and you look at the relationships that you have, to what degree do you measure the timing and the temperament of what you want to say? Uh, do you consider, are you, are you paying attention to where the person is? So if, they're, if, if Carol's white-hot angry, which comes around as often as Haley's comet does, but if she's white-hot angry, th then a gentle answer is going to turn away wrath. You know, she may need to hear something, but, but it's got to wait. It, it's, it's not the right timing. I need to ask, is this the best timing? Can this wait? I have to humble myself. I have to bite my tongue uh, to make sure that it fits the occasion, that, that it's not just, I've got to get it off my chest kind of thing. So, so as fits the, this is really a nuance that you don't think about. Your conversations are flowing back and forth, and you often don't even think about the, the situation that the other person is in. We would do well to stop, pray for discernment and wisdom before we engage in conversation, to understand, do I really know where this person is? And should I not labor and pray for discernment to know where are they and what do they need to hear right now? It will delay things, no doubt, but it would sure save a ton of arguments. Okay, third thing about redemptive speech. Redemptive speech, it, it builds up, it's fit for the occasion, but it also bears grace. So look at the end of 29. He says, uh, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is really important, and it's really, it's really fun to think about. That our speech, Paul is saying, that if you've been made new, as Ephesians 2 says, that you want to speak in a way 
that is gracious. You're like a vehicle of God's mercy to them with your words. You're coming, it may be a word of forgiveness. It may be a word of gentle admonishment. But what you're doing is you're thinking, I want to say something that will be gracious, that will be favorable to them, that will help them. In other words, I'm thinking more about what they need than what I need to say. So what do they need to hear? What do they need that will help them walk out the purposes of God in their life? How can I advance godliness? How can I advance faith? How can I advance trust in their life by what I say? Think of how this will change the speed and the content of your conversation. It, the, the key, the operative issue here is that your speech is trying to be conditioned by what they need, not what you want to say. So the, the I got to get it off my chest, doesn't work here because they may not need that. Th this idea of not just self-control in the last point, but selflessness in speech, that we're going to speak with deference to their needs. Again, when you look at your marriages and you look at the relationships outside your marriage, I mean, think how often you actually can form your words to what they need to hear at the time. How often does that happen? How often does their godliness or their, or their encouragement, how often does that cause you to change the words you may say? In other words, you have to think about them without thinking about yourself. Now, you know that we tend to be most narcissistic in our conversations. We tend to speak most about ourselves. So I've often asked you, I said, when you leave a conversation, just ask yourself the question, what do I know about it? Did I learn anything? If you learn nothing, it probably means you were the subject of most of the conversation. And he's saying here, it's grace for the other. So our words are conditioned for the benefit of the other. You know, the kids at one point, I don't know what stage of life they're in, but they kind of were joking around saying, hey, I'm tired of talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a while? That's the way most of us are. Or that Toby, that Toby Keith song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one. That's what we struggle with. And we live in a you-do-you culture. You do you. It doesn't work. This is revolutionary. This is against a you-do-you culture. No, you, it's I do, I do you. I don't do me, I do you. So, so that's the way he's calling us to converse. That, that I'm looking at you and I want to leave the conversation with some encouragement, some gracious word to you, some word of hope, some word of admonishment, some word of direction, so that you're bettered in God. Okay, so, so the fourth, the fourth aspect of redemptive speech would be that it makes the spirit glad. Look with me at 30. At 30 he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this is kind of Paul, I think he's giving us a warning here, and I think he's giving us motivation. And I think what he's saying here is this, that when you speak in a way that does not build up, that is not fit for the occasion, and that does not bear grace, that you're grieving the Spirit. So our sarcasm, our criticism of other people, our gossip, our slander, our piling on when someone else mentions something foolish about somebody else, you know, all those, you know, the kind of, all that stuff, it grieves the Spirit of God. 
The Spirit of God has come to promote unity, to preserve unity of, the, of this body of Christ. We are being made new. Christ is the head. We are the body. And the Spirit is looking to build unity. And this kind of language and speech tears asunder. And so it grieves the Spirit of God. Now, you know what this means. I mean, if you're a parent and you have more than one child, it, when your two or more children begin to fight, it grieves you. I remember as our kids were growing up and Sometimes they would lock horns and they would say things and behave in certain ways. I remember just being crushed by it. You love your children. You want them to love each other and care for each other through thick and thin. And when they tear into each other, you're grieved. By it. I think that's what he's saying here. That when we use our speech in a way that rips apart, it just grieves the Spirit of God who has come to fill us. He has come to seal us for redemption. You find that in chapter 1, verse 13. We've been, Christ has redeemed us. God has called us before the foundations of the world. And the Spirit fills us and now seals us to complete us. That's our security right there. Our security is not we're going to get it all straight in the end. The security we have to be saved on that final day is the Spirit of God moving us through. It's got to be the Spirit of God applying the truth of God to us. And the Spirit is grieved when we do this. So you see, redemptive speech is really made up of many parts. It's to, to use our words to build one another up. It's to use our, our words that are fit for the occasion, that bear grace, and that make the Spirit glad. So right now, most of us, if we can speak, are probably feeling somewhat... Maybe you're thinking back to last week and what you said to your spouse. You know the sting that we can give to one another. Or you know the wounds that we can create. So what do we do with this? Have I just led you to a corner of conviction and got nothing for you? I've got a few ideas, a few ideas of what we do. I'm going to give you things to climb out of this hole that I think many of us feel we're in. Number one, I would ask you to consider the heart. Consider your heart. What I want you to understand is the words that come out of your mouth that can be so destructive are really indicative of what's in our heart. Do not think that you just lost control of your tongue. Don't think that it was just a situational problem. I had a bad day at work. Things didn't go right for me. Well, if you hadn't have said that, then I wouldn't have said that. No, Jesus makes it clear that it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of a man. He links the words that we speak to the heart that we have. The writer of Proverbs said the same thing, the heart is the wellspring of life. I want you to see that, that the words that we say when they're so rotten, that it's really indicative of the pollution that we have in our heart. Even for the Christian, listen, Christians don't speak perfectly. And when they speak imperfectly, what they do is they are thankful that there's a clear path to God for his grace and mercy and forgiveness, and we run to it and we seek his grace. God, forgive me. I said it again. I said I wouldn't say it, and I said it. And I said it with more force than I ever thought I would say it. God, forgive me. The Christian, he, doesn't, he or she doesn't make excuses. They don't blame it on the situation. They don't blame it on their spouse. Nope, that's mine. I own that one. I own it. And this is why I need the gospel all the way until I stop breathing. I need his mercy's got to be new every morning. Every morning we need him. And thankfully, the, the scriptures are clear that he is there for us. Don't fail to run to him because you fail. Because you fail, run to him. 
That, that's the purpose. All those who are weary and heavy, run to him. He'll give you rest. He'll give you forgiveness. So for the Christian, you have the ability to seek forgiveness, knowing that the words that you say have come out of this. This needs to be changed incrementally. Now that goes to say that if, you know, if you're not a Christian, if you have just never even thought about it, or perhaps you've, made a, you've taken a position that I don't think I believe, well, this is why we have to be born again. This is why the Bible teaches that we have to be born again. Because behavioral modification will not change what's inside. We actually have to be made new, which is what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are all about. We have to be made new. You, you can't manage your words. He's already said it is untamable other than by the Spirit of God. So consider your heart in that. So when you find yourself speaking of words, don't blame them in other places. But go to God and say, God, please clean my heart, strengthen me, help me, help me. And then secondly, would you confess your words? So in other words, I want you this afternoon, well, maybe not on a Father's Day, but tomorrow morning, early, no. Confess the words that you've spoken. Confess them to God. God has given you a gift which you and I have misused. So confess them to God. But clearly confess them to your spouse. If you're married, I want each spouse to ask the other, when do you hear me speaking words that build up? make sure that your spouse knows these are words by which I feel built up. So he or she can move in those. And here are words that you've used to tear me down. Let her or he tell you that. And then repent. Ask for forgiveness. I did not want to hurt you. I'm sorry. I did, no, you know what? I probably did want to hurt you because I felt hurt. And I'm sorry. That shows, that shows me loving myself more than you. Just repent of it. And if you're not married, ask your family or friends, where do you see me using my tongue in a way that is critical, sarcastic, mean-spirited, and condemning and divisive? Ask a roommate. Ask a family member. Don't argue with them. Just listen to it and pray about it. But confess these things. He's faithful to forgive us. I love confession. And if you're holding on to something somebody said three and a half years ago and you're still angry about it, Ask God for grace to forgive. At least have a posture of forgiveness. Because you have surely hurt others with your speech that you may not even know about. And remember that poem I quoted last week from George Herbert? He says, He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. If he were to ever reach heaven, for everyone has need to be forgiven. We all have need to be forgiven for our sins of speech. And, and, and then thirdly, call upon God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever, like David said, set a guard over my mouth? He says that in Psalm 39 and in Psalm 141. Set a guard over my Put a sentinel. Put a soldier in front of my mouth so before I open it, it'll say, whoa, who goes there? Don't come out. We don't want that. You know, set a guard over my mouth. You know, James gives us the warning. He says that he or she who does not keep a tight rein on his tongue his, he deceives himself, and his faith is worthless. Boy, that, that's a strong word. Faith, if we don't keep a tight right, God help me speak in a manner. That's what Psalm 19 is about. He says, says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, because they're together. They're not two different things. And meditations of the heart are going to come out in the words of his mouth. 
He says, let the meditations or let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. God, you're my rock, you're my redeemer. Help me to speak right. So call upon God and get others to pray for you. You know, generally when we have things on the prayer list, you know, they tend to be immediate needs, which are legitimate, and dire needs. And those, of course, are legitimate. But wouldn't it be just wild if someone put on the prayer chain, I'm wicked with gossip and I need you to help me. I mean, wouldn't you respect the person? Or you know what? I'm so critical of other people. It just comes out of my mouth. I just want to, I want to critique everyone. If that came out of the prayer chain, I mean, I dropped to the floor praying for them. God, have mercy on them and me because it reminds me of what I need. So, so call upon God. And then fourth, contemplate the last day. Contemplate the last day. Listen, you have been given the gift of speech. And, and you know, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book that uh, God is not silent. The God who is not silent. God is a speaking God. God uses words all the time, right? God used a word to create the world. God sustains the world with his word. God confronts and God comforts and God instructs with his words. God brought the gospel through the word. God calls his son the word. God speaks. He's a speaking God. And God is reserving the worlds for judgment right now by his word, it says. And God's given us men and women, his creation, his image bearers. We have the unique ability to speak in ways not nowhere else in creation has this gift. You say, well, the animals, well, yeah, cows moo, dogs bark, cats meow. They communicate, but they don't communicate in a life-giving, a life-taking way. We are like God in this way. We can give life with a word, and we can take life slowly. We can kill a person with our words. They are like sword thrusts, the writer of Proverbs says. You can kill a person with your words. You know that. You've felt the sting of that. This gift that has been given to us is a gift. It's not ours. It's to be stewarded. And when it's to be stewarded, it means we have responsibility to God to use these words right. You know, Jesus made this clear in Matthew chapter 12. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. He's not saying your words justify or condemn you. The words are expressing what's thought here. So there's that day. Let that day work for your good. Let that day of judgment not cause you to fear, but cause you to alter the way you speak. Think about it. So I was reading this morning as I was praying before, before uh, or preparing to come in here, I just reminded my, myself of uh, James 3.1, that the teacher will come under stricter judgment. That causes me to fear. You know, the first thing I did when I read that, God have mercy on me. Because I'm up here every week teaching you. And I'm going to bear stricter judgment for that. And so I look at that day to make sure that, that I'm trying to do it right. And to try to do it for your edification and for your good. Because I'll have a day that you won't have. But we'll all have that day of these words. Let that day work towards redemptive ends. Don't let it fear you. Let it just lead you. And then the last thing is, celebrate the gospel with me. I mean, celebrate that Jesus Christ has died for our sins of speech, our sarcasm, our ill-timed comments, our criticisms, our gossip, our slander. 
the way that we tear people down, the way that we hurt other people when we feel hurt, he has died for those. Praise God for that. The one who has come to die never uttered a deceitful word. He never uttered a slanderous comment. He never uttered a word of false flattery. He never lied. He never spoke ill, never spoke. He is the perfect substitute for people who have sinned in this speech. And we have been forgiven by God for that through faith. So may I encourage you to celebrate the gospel. I want you know, That's really what preaching does. You know, you want to afflict the comforted. You want to comfort the afflicted. You want to bring people to see their need for the gospel. That's what I've wanted to do today. It's what I've done all week long. God, help me to see how much I need you. Not just as a fire insurance policy from judgment, but let me see how much I need you, even the way I just love my wife with my words. So, so he's given us some clear instructions here. Isn't the word practical? I, I mean, sometimes it's so practical, it's quite uncomfortable. So, so redemptive speech is marked by building others up. It's marked by, by making sure that it fits the occasion. It's marked by bearing grace to the other, that their needs direct the timing and the words that we choose. And then it makes glad the Spirit of God rejoice over that. So let, let me encourage you to, uh, let's take this moment now and just ask God for grace and th that he might reveal to us the areas that we need to grow in, confess perhaps. Let's ask him and, and rejoice over the gospel even now. And, and let this bear the fruit in our marriage. L you know, we live in a culture right now that is so polarized, you cannot enter a discussion without raising the hair on the back of anyone's neck, no matter what position you take. We can't, if Christians spoke this way, and by the way, your Twitter account, your Instagram, your Facebook, those are words that are communicated. Are they giving the benefit of the doubt to those who differ with you? Are they assuming the best of others? Are they grace-bearing? Uh, the way we communicate on the internet is no different than the way we communicate with our speech. May we be Christians in this time of great polarization and social unrest. May we be a people who speak to build up others, fit for the occasion, bearing grace in a way that we bring joy to the Spirit. I tell you, the gospel looks beautiful. Uh, you know, when the gospel flows out of your mouth and it flows after words that are building up and gracious bearing and fit for the occasion, it's a lot more easy to understand it. Let's pray for that now, and then I'll close this in a moment.